my name is John. I'm the lead pastor, and so glad that you're here today. Uh, I just want to start by letting you know uh, just how much uh, I love you, and not that that even really matters that much, because so much more. God loves you so much. Uh, and today, you are invited. Uh, there's an invitation that is available. And what you are invited to is you are invited to stop. Uh, here's what you're invited to stop. You have an invitation today to stop worrying. You have an invitation to stop stressing. You have an invitation to stop being so busy. You have an invitation to stop checking your phone. You have an invitation to stop putting work in front of relationships. You have an invitation to stop hustling. You have an invitation to stop being so self-centered. You have an invitation to stop being so self-reliant. You have an invitation to stop trying to impress the people around you. You have an invitation to stop being so image conscious. You have an invitation to stop buying things you can't afford and that you don't even need. You have an invitation to stop comparing yourself to others. You have an invitation to stop worrying about falling behind. You have an invitation to stop believing your imposter syndrome. You have an invitation to stop trying to do it all. You have an invitation to stop biting off more than you can chew. You have an invitation to stop letting work define you to stop being a workaholic. You have an invitation to stop burning yourself out. You have an invitation to stop saying yes to more commitments than you can possibly keep. You have an invitation to stop and to rest and to delight and to remember that God loves you. Uh, there's a guy I used to work with, a uh, church I used to work at uh, in Gilderland, and he would make a regular habit of uh, at the end of a work day and almost always at the end of a work week, he would stand up and he would turn his computer off and he would say these words, I am finished. I may not be done, but I am finished. And he would get up and he would walk away, and he would get on with the rest of his weekend. Uh, today, uh, we are in part three of a series that we started, uh, that started at the beginning of September, and we're going to go all the way through Christmas. And uh, for all of the fall, we're going to be looking at three passages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and the reason we are doing that is because we... Uh, 
believe in the Bible a lot, and what we say about the Bible is that the Bible isn't actually a book. It's actually a collection of 66 different books. But even though it has all these different letters and stories and it spans so many thousands of years, even that it was written, that the Bible is in fact, uh, this is stolen from our friends at the Bible Project, it is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so if we're going to understand all of these different things that are in the Bible, this unified story, then it's very important for us to know how the story begins. And so these three chapters are literally the first couple pages of your Bible, and they tell us how the whole story begins, and they are central to us understanding all the rest of the story. And in particular, what we want to see as we go through the series is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 has to say about this unified story, about what was God's original plan, what went wrong, because we can just assume that if God's original plan was very good, as what we said the first week, then as we look around our world, even over the last couple of days, as we're plunging into even more war and violence in our world and whatever is going on in our individual lives, something is obviously wrong with the world that is not according to God's original plan. And we believe that God has an answer. But for us to really understand what that answer is, which we understand is Jesus, then for us to really understand how that unified story that leads to Jesus and what that answer is, then it's very important for us to understand what was the plan and what went wrong. And today what we want to talk about is that part of God's original plan for the world was God wanted us to rest. God wanted us to be able to stop, rest, delight, and remember that God loves you. Uh, so our key passage for today, uh, we've been going through uh, Genesis chapter 1, and so today we're kind of rolling into Genesis chapter 2, uh, but we're still going to be looking a lot at Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a, a Bible or if you have like an app or something like that, it might even be helpful for you to look at it. Uh, but here's what we're looking at in Genesis chapter 2 today. It says, thus, oh, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Uh, and so as you're reading through the story of Genesis 1 or 2, as you get to this beginning part of Genesis 2, it's obvious that the story at this point, as we are reading this through our English Bibles, through our Western standpoint, it's kind of obvious to all of us that this is a part where now God is talking about rest. And the part of God's original plan for creation had to do with this idea of rest and Sabbath is what we're going to talk about today. But I want to take a little bit of time, and this is going to be like a little bit nerdy. And so for some of you who like really enjoy like kind of like we say like digging into the context and kind of like under like the surface of stuff, then you're going to really love this. Uh, if you love like literature, you're going to really love this. For others of you, this might be like, all right, come on, let's get to the point. But hang on, because this is pretty important. Because what I want you to see is, again, when we read these chapters, uh, we eventually get to the idea of rest. 
But the original folks who were reading this were not reading it in English because English hadn't been invented yet. Who knew? Uh, they were reading it in ancient Hebrew and a very ancient Israelite culture. And so when they were reading it, they would have seen something very, very different. And so, and what they would have seen, uh, this is part of like what we want to again do during this whole series, is that we want to, uh, we talked about the term of being literary tourists, uh, that we realize that when we are reading uh, these sections of the Bible, we are not reading something that was written in a culture of, uh, that's like ours. It wasn't written in a language that we know. And so we have to do a little bit of work to kind of better understand what it would have meant to the original readers. And so one of the things uh, that I have learned over the last couple of years, and now I'm happy to pass on to you, is that a common thing that ancient Israelite authors would have done is they would have done something called trying to bury treasure in the text. Uh, it's kind of a term that other kind of rabbis have given to it. Uh, and so here's uh, the idea behind it. This comes from uh, Marty Solomon. It's all about rest. Sorry, I think I skipped a few slides in there for on. Sorry about that. Go to the next one. Here we go. Uh, so remember that the goal of an Eastern author who would have written Genesis 1, 2, and 3 would have been an Eastern audience that would have read it for the very first time. Author or teacher, uh, part of their goal is to bury treasure in a teaching or a story. And they are adding multiple layers of depth into the story intentionally, which, cre- which, which increases the amount of discovery. And so they had kind of the surface level reading, but you're intentionally supposed to like see other things in the text that make you go, oh, that makes it even bigger and deeper. And so I'm going to try to point out a few of those today, but there's a lot of them. Uh, if you, again, if you're someone who really gets into this and you're like, ooh, I want to know like a lot more about that, uh, then you're in luck. Uh, we have a, a resource page that we have put on our website. So if you go to our website, you can click on resources. And we have a number of different books and podcasts and videos where you can dive way deeper into all this if like this is something that you like enjoy nerding out on. Uh, but this especially I think will be pretty cool today. Uh, so for the first part of uh, Genesis 1, what we want you to see, if you look in your Bible, then what you will see in Genesis chapter 1 is that it's kind of laid out with this like natural rhythm and structure. Uh, and there's a reason for that, because the Bible has different literary kind of devices in it. And so sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you're reading history. Uh, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, uh, you're reading poetry. And in this case, when you're reading Genesis 1-1, you are reading poetry. And so this is very important, especially for some of us uh, as we're maybe struggling with faith or whatever else. Uh, This is talking about the creation of the world. But this particular part of the Bible is not trying to give us a historical account of how the world was created, and it was not trying to tell us a scientific way that the world was created. It was trying to write a poem for us talking about why God created the world, which is a big deal. And so there's all these different kinds. It's kind of written as a poem. It kind of has like a natural rhythm and structure through it. And so an ancient uh, Israelite reader would have automatically opened this and been like, oh, like there's kind of this like rhythm to it. I wonder what's in these rhythms. And so one of the rhythms that they would have seen is they would have seen a rhythm of sevens. Uh, Again, this is very 
weird for us English readers because most of us are not in the habit of when you're sitting down and reading something, you don't often count the amount of words that are in a text or the amount of letters that are in a text. That's very weird for us. But for an ancient Israelite writer and an ancient Israelite reader, the idea of having numbered words and numbered uh, uh, sentences would have been incredibly important. And all throughout Genesis 1, you're going to see these patterns of seven. Uh, And all throughout, actually, Israelite uh, reading, kind of ancient Israelite reading, there's this idea of numerology, and there's a couple very significant numbers. So the number 40, if you read through the Old Testament, you see 40 in all these different places. You you might see the number 3 in quite a few different places. You might see the number 10 in quite a few different places. But the most prominent of all numbers in the Old Testament is 7. And so uh, here's what it says about the number 7. It says, uh, Numbers in biblical times were often symbolic of a deeper meaning and significance. The number seven is especially prominent in the Bible, appearing over, can you believe it, 700 times. Uh, And we're going to look at just a couple of these from Genesis chapter one. Uh, So the very first line of Genesis chapter one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, And depending on which version of your English Bible you read, there's going to be different numbers of English words. But if you were to read that in the Hebrew, guess how many Hebrew words are in the very first line of the Bible. Seven. You guys are good. Uh, And then if you keep reading to the second and the third lines of Genesis chapter 1, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Guess how many words are in each of these two lines of the beginning part of the Bible? There you go. Yeah, two different lines, each with seven. And then on and on, as you read through Genesis chapter 1, there's all these different kind of patterns of seven. And here's just a a few of them. So uh, the days of creation, there's seven days of creation. There's seven paragraphs in the poems. Uh, The words, let there be, is seven times in the text. God saw that it was good is seven times in the text. Uh, The word light is used seven times just in day one, and then it's used again seven times in day chapter four. Uh, The word God is used seven times five times, so 35, if anyone wants to keep it up with math. Uh, Land is used seven times three, which is? Yeah, you guys are good. Uh, Sky is used seven times three, which is also? There you go. Uh, All these different kind of cool patterns through there. And then, so it's Kind of to an ancient uh, reader, they're reading this, and like when we read this, it doesn't pop out to us at all. But literally, like sevens would have been like popping off the page, and they're like, "What is the deal with seven? Like, what is so significant? What happened on a seven? And it's kind of building day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and it kind of culminates with this big day seven. And then here's what happens on day seven: by the seventh day. God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. By the way, guess how many Hebrew words are in each of these three sentences? Seven, yeah. And so he's just going out of his way saying seven is a really big deal. So as they're reading through this, to an ancient Israelite reader, the idea is when you're reading through Genesis 1 is that this idea of seven is so central in some ways. You could say that the whole story of creation, all of this is pointing to this idea that the whole thing is almost all about 
rest. It's all about taking a break. Of what happens on the seventh day is really one of the most important things that happens. Yeah, as they're reading through the whole thing, just that stopping and rest would have been very, very important. Uh, so that's first layer of context that they would have seen back then. Uh, the second thing that they would have seen is they're looking at this poem that's obviously kind of written in kind of this very poetic literature way, is they would have seen that like, oh, like the way in which this is written, this must have like a center point to it. Like the, the, the poem almost kind of like folded up on itself, uh, which if that doesn't make total sense, it actually doesn't make a ton of sense to me either, but that's like what it did, and they would have been like, oh. And so what they would have called that back then, next one, uh, so they would have seen that it had a center, and what they called that center is a chiasm, which was a new thing uh, that I've learned about over the last couple years. And here's what a chiasm is. A chiasm is a very effective way for an author to bury a treasure within a story. And so there's many rabbis, as they're looking at how you even decipher all of Genesis 1 through 12, that say every single one of the intro chapters of the Bible, that every single one is built on a chiasm. And so if you want to see what the text is really all about, you have to look at the middle of what that's pointing to, which again, so weird, like we don't do that when we're reading our English, but back then that was very normal and that's what they did. Uh, and here's how a chiasm works. Uh, the story is constructed in an inverted fashion with distinct parts or phrasing. The first part of the story mirrors the last part, and the second part of the story mirrors the second to the last part, and so on, until the story works itself towards the center of the chiasm and is here where the audience finds buried treasure. Everybody follow that? Who's confused? Okay, it's okay if you're confused. Uh, here's the point of it, though, is that when they would have read this 5,000 years ago, they would have had this moment of like, oh, there's something at the center. And so we ask, what is at the center of this text? And you guys can get this. So there's seven days of creation. What do you think is at the middle of seven days of creation? Day four. Some of you guys are math people. Good. And so if you look at the very, it kind of all points to this day four. So here's what happens on day four. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And so on day four was when this rhythm of creation in this poem, this kind of rhythm of day and night. There's like a rhythm to how our lives work. There's like a rhythm to how days work, that there's a time when the sun is up. There's a time when it is dark. There's a time when we're awake. There's a time when we're asleep. Uh, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Uh, and so that's kind of the paragraph that was at the center of Genesis 1. And then here's the word that was at the center of Genesis 1. And it's this word here, sacred times, which is the Hebrew word moad. Uh, and Moad referred to these sacred times that were in the Israelite world. And so some of you, if you grew up Jewish, uh, or you are Jewish, or you have Jewish friends, you know about these, that there's all these kind of sacred times built into the Jewish calendar, mainly Sabbath and feast days. Uh, and, by the way, guess how many times they would do the Sabbath? They would do the Sabbath every seventh day, and they had seven feast days every year, and every seven years, they would have a whole sabbatical year where they would take a year off. And so again, at the very center of Genesis 1 is this idea that the world is created around this idea of, of rhythms, that there's kind of this like 
pacing to the way in which the world is created, that there's, the sun is up, the sun is down. Every seven days you take a Sabbath. Seven times a year you have a feast day. Every seven, that kind of built into the idea of creation is this rhythm of not just going, 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 but taking time regularly to stop. And early Israelite readers this would have like jumped off the page like as we're reading through this creation. That this isn't telling us like necessarily a scientific anything. This isn't telling us a historical. But something about what the author wants us to know is that God created this world with this idea of this idea of seven days and what happens on the seventh day of rest. And that at the very center of creation is this idea that we are built to live life with a rhythm. And the part of that rhythm is to have Sabbath and breaks and a regular sabbatical. Uh, So that's like part of what they would have seen as they're going through this. And so why would that have all been so significant? Why uh, would it have been so big for them to write all of this? I mean, just think about like how carefully you would have had to write this poem to make sure you had all those sevens in there, you know, to make sure that the whole poem centered on this idea. Like why was that such a big deal? And what most uh, Bible philosophers think and uh, rabbis think is that when Genesis 1 was actually written down, it was probably told around campfires before this, but when it was written down was when the people were coming out of or maybe when they were still slaves in Egypt. And so part of their story, part of who they were at that point is they were in slavery. Uh, Put the picture up. So what they would have done is, uh, go to the next one. Oh, sorry, this is a good, this is a good quote about rhythms. Uh, Genesis 1 isn't just telling you about what type of world you're living in. It's showing you as an Israelite leader that your life of worship, rhythms, are woven into the fabric of the universe. And so for an ancient Israelite and still our Jewish friends, when they see that they're having these feast days, when they see that they're having, they see that that's like built into the creation of the world, which would have been pretty cool. Uh, dang, go to the next one. The invitation to stop, rest, and delight. We'll add all kinds of slides in here I forgot about. Okay. All right, there they are, finally. Uh, in case you didn't know what a pyramid looked like. Uh, really need to get to this picture. Uh, the, so the ancient Israelite original audience, this, they were slaves in Egypt. And so, so much of their identity was built on this idea of just this back-breaking, terrible work to build things in honor of the pharaohs, in honor of the gods, and so much of their lives were about this dehumanizing effect of saying so much of the message of Genesis 1 is that God was created into this, the part of creation with God's original plan was to create this very good world. So we talked about week one. And the part of God's original plan was to create us made into the image of God, that our humanity is good. And they've been living in this world, in this culture, where the world didn't seem very good. The world seemed hard. It seemed difficult. It seemed oppressive. It just seemed like every system was working against them. And their humanity was literally being beaten out of them. Uh, One of the narratives, so the Egyptian narrative that they would have grown up with, uh, every every ancient uh, worldview had an idea of how the world is created and how mankind is created. We talked about this two weeks ago. And so the typical, uh, what they would have believed, is that humans are created as afterthoughts to do grunt work 
for the gods. And so the message that they would have been inundated with in Egypt for 400 years was this idea that you're not really all that special. You're not a big deal. I mean, God, he kind of created you as like an afterthought. You don't really matter all that much. You don't really matter to God all that much. And actually, the only reason you were created was you were created to get work done. And so, therefore, if you want to somehow matter to God, or if you want your life to matter in general, really your only choice is that you could do work. And so, therefore, the more work you do, the more you're going to matter in general, the more you're going to matter to God. But if for some reason you fall behind, if you're not meeting your quota of making bricks today, if you're not building the pyramids as high as they need to be, then your life doesn't really matter all that much, and you might quite literally be distinguished. And that would have been the message that they would have been given over and over and over again. And so now these authors are trying to write down this different, new version of how the world came into being. And what they want to do is they want to let these people living in slavery or coming out of slavery know this different and new way that they can see the world. Uh, one of the tools we use around here is called Lectio 365, and, uh, and every Sunday they have uh, what they call a Sabbath blessing that you can do. And I love uh, the way that it phrases this. So here's how Lectio says it. It says, May this day, this is the goal of the Sabbath. This is the goal of the seventh day, and then of the seven feasts and everything else. May this day bring Sabbath rest to my heart and my home, and may God's image in me be restored and my imagination in God be restored. Part of what the writer of Genesis wanted to do, and part of why the Sabbath became such a central part of Jewish celebration and Jewish faith in these seven feast days, is it's a day in the week. It's a regular rhythm that we can put into our lives where God's image is somehow being restored, that I can remember who I actually am. I am created to be in the image of God. I am not an afterthought. I matter because God made me, and I can be restoried. That my, my worth, who I am, is way more than just what I can produce. And I don't know about you, but that's a message that I need, like, preached to me on a pretty regular basis. Uh, some of you know, uh, last uh, summer, Ash and I got a chance to go on a sabbatical. And so uh, the, the elders of the church and really all of you uh, gave us two months off where we got to, to just rest and delight and relax. Uh, and one of the things that I was dealing with as I was going through a sabbatical is, as many of you know, uh, we're pretty involved in the community in the city of Albany, and we have lots of different things that we do, especially over the course of the summer. We're involved in all these different events, and kind of this group of community leaders that I'm a part of, uh, there's one in particular who has taken it upon himself to give everybody superhero names. Uh, so we're all superheroes, and we're going to save the city, is his idea. And so his superhero name that he gave to me is I Am the Flash, which is kind of cool. And so the reason I'm the flash is because he says, because I, one, I, I'm a runner and so I'm always kind of out running around, but it's because part of what I do is I'm just everywhere. I try to be, if there's something happening in the city, I'm just foo, 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 you know, like always trying to be at every place and trying to do what I can do to help. And as we we're getting ready to go on sabbatical last summer, one of the things I realized is that I'm not going to be, do, 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 I'm going to be nowhere. 
Uh, I'm not going to be at any events this summer, which raises a question, what are people going to think of me then? I mean, the reason why I have value is because I'm the guy who shows up. It's because I'm the guy who's at all these different places. It's because I'm the guy who's like providing all this energy. And so if I'm not there, then does that mean that I don't matter anymore? Does that mean that they even really care about me? I mean, isn't after all, all of my worth just built into what I can produce? So one of the things that I realized, uh, and a good counselor helped me realize, is that I need to be, I need God's image in me to be restored. I need to be re-storied. A book that uh, my counselor uh, recommended to me last year was this great book that is on our resource page. I recommend it to all of you now. It's called A Theology of the Ordinary uh, by Julie Candless. A really fantastic book. It's very small. Uh, And I will give you the same advice if you choose to read it that my counselor gave me. Uh, You could read it all in one quick sitting if you wanted to. Don't do that. Uh, read it incredibly slow. Uh, but her kind of whole idea in this book is that we live in a world of extraordinary, uh, especially kind of in Christian worlds. Uh, we live in a world of like radical and like you got to like, you know, you, you can do something in your life that's amazing. You know, like everyone needs to go out and really like take what you have and really try to do as much as you possibly can. And her kind of whole idea in this book is that what we need to be is it's okay to be ordinary. Uh, go to that next slide now. The part of what we want to do is we want to reclaim our humanity. So what we talked about two weeks ago is that God created you and he created me. And from the very beginning, our humanity, who we are, God says, is very good. And part of what goes along with our humanity is that we are human, which means we have limits. Uh, Here's what uh, Julie uh, says in the book. Uh, She says, their humanity, Adam and Eve's, all of ours, their humanity was not a problem for God or something that he put up with. It was their, sorry, we skipped a few slides in there, didn't we? Go back one. Go back one more, I think. Forward one more, sorry. We'll find it. There you go. Limitation. There it is. Limitation was written into their perfection because limitation put them in proper relationship with the Creator. Seems like we missed one in there. We're going to get this right. We can do this. Talk about limitations. So go back two slides, I think. There you go. When God created us, limited as we are. So God created us to have limits, which that was such like an aha to me that like I'd always kind of had this idea that like when God created us, kind of the original version of like us in the garden, like we were like Superman and Superwoman. We just like, you know, could do everything. This idea that like from the very beginning, God created us as real human beings with limits. Uh, Limited as we are, he said it's very good. When he created us with bodies, this introduced the possibility for hunger and thirst and sleep. These are things we needed from the very beginning. Limitation was written into their perfection because limitation put them in proper relationship with the creator. 
Their humanity was not a problem for God or something he put up with. It was their greatest gift. That we were created from the very beginning with this idea that it's okay to be human. The part of how God created the world is with this natural rhythm. And so some of the things that are in the very beginning of creation, that God separated the day from the night. And so this idea of sleep, that is part of how we were created. Uh, that we will have food, that eating is part of how we are created, that finishing work, that stopping, that resting from us, that, that these are normal things. And for some of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, this is difficult. Because sometimes we feel like pretty guilty for this. Like to like let other people know that's like, I, I talk to people all the time, they're like, oh, I'm so tired, I'm so tired. But the idea of like, I'm just going to like take some extra time to sleep more feels like we're like admitting something that's like weak about ourselves. Like that like, wait, somehow like we can't hack it. That like we don't, we were created from the very beginning to sleep. One of the things you can most do to get back in touch with the image of God in yourself is to sleep appropriately. Uh, Some of you like, you can go through your whole work day and you're like, oh, I, I didn't even take time for lunch today. I've just been working, working, working. And we wear it like it's a badge of honor. You were, and I've seen some of you when you get hungry before. You are not. You were created from the very beginning to stop and to eat and to enjoy. That's like part of like how we were created to be. That you were created to stop. That it's okay. Like my friend would say that we might not be finished, but right now we are going to be done. I'm not going to do any more. Yes, I could do more. Yes, I could probably complete a little bit more, but it's okay for me just to stop right where I am and leave it unfinished. Uh, I think one of the most kind of beautiful pictures of Sabbath is when there's ever any kind of like a project going on and there's like some laundry that's like half uh, folded or a bed that's unmade and just to realize like, everything is not completely put where I need it to be, but it's okay. I can stop right where I am and that I can rest. And that's part of how we were created to be. Uh, And the last thing uh, we see in all this is the idea that God wants us to rest because, as Aaron prayed earlier, God rested. And so built into this idea is that because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And built into this idea at the very beginning of Genesis, is, I talked about this two weeks ago, that in most cultures there's this idea that like the gods are up here and we're down here and the gods kind of like order us around, but like there's like this such divide. And from the very beginning it says that we are made in the image of God. And so therefore from the very beginning we're supposed to do the kind of things that God does. And so if God creates, we are supposed to create. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. That if God cares about the, the, the orphans and the widows, then we are supposed to care about the orphans and the widows. And if God rests, then we should rest. And kind of built into this idea is that we are looking at God and trying to imitate him and that we are trying to learn from him and that we can, in some ways, we're not God, but we are made in his image and we can be like him and it restores that image. Uh, here's what um, Pete uh, Gazera says, uh, perhaps one of the most helpful things that uh, I've done and many of us have done over the last couple of years is a class called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he talks about this idea of embracing our limits. And here's what he says. He says, the essence of being created in God's image is our ability, like God, to stop 
When we stop, we are being like God. We imitate God by stopping our work and resting. If we can stop for one day a week or for a mini Sabbath each day, a daily office, we touch something deep within us as image bearers of God. Again, I think this is like so different than the message we get. It's like we want to like try to like conquer the world and we want to like in some ways like we all kind of want to be superheroes and like we all want to be like God-like in our own way. And so we feel like the way that we can do that is by going more, working harder, like focusing more. And one of the best ways that you can actually be like God is to like take a nap, enjoy, take a day off and, and be that with God. Our brains, bodies, spirits, and emotions are all wired by God for the rhythm of working and resting in Him. The part of how God created our world was with this idea of rest from the very beginning. Uh, and so here's the invitation. Uh, and we've talked about this uh, a lot actually over the last couple of years, so maybe some of you are already in some sort of a rhythm of this. I'm guessing that many of us have heard this idea of like Sabbath and taking a break and like getting to five o'clock and whenever your workday is done and just being done and enjoying relationships, actually enjoying our food, sleeping, resting, worshiping, all these things. But maybe we are not completely into the practice of doing it regularly. And so as we're going through this series, I want to invite you, you are invited to regularly at least seven days a week, but maybe even on a daily basis, to stop and rest. Uh, and I want to kind of do a, a practice with all of us to kind of help us get into that mind frame. Because if you've tried to do this, like just having a day where it's like, okay, now I'm going to rest. It's, it can feel weird. You need know, like something to kind of almost like kickstart it a little bit. Uh, so again, uh, a tool we've been uh, pushing is called Lectio 365. Uh, it, it's an amazing app. Uh, there's an adult one that you can do. There's a daytime, there's a one you can do in the morning, one you can do in the night, and then there's a family one. And so uh, we're going to do the family uh, Lectio Sabbath together. Uh, and this is actually uh, the Lectio from October 1st, so this is from last Sunday. Uh, and so what I want to encourage us to do uh, just kind of right there where you are in your seat. Take just like a minute uh, before I start this and just kind of like try to get yourself into a little bit of a restful place, whatever that looks like for you. Just kind of get comfortable in your chair, take some breaths. And what I want you to know as we start this is that you are created in the image of God. And that God loves you. And that God created this world. And God created this whole universe built in at the center, popping up all over the creation text with this idea of rest. That you are made to rest. That's part of the rhythm of how we are made. Uh, so let's listen to this together. Uh, it'll be on the screen that you can follow along. This week, we've oh. been thinking in... It's, sun, it's Sunday, the 1st of October. 
This week, we've been thinking and praying about Jesus's prayers. But today, it's the Sabbath, so we're taking a break from our regular pattern to pray a little differently. The Bible tells the story of God making the universe and everything in it in six days. Every Sunday, we remember the Sabbath, when God rested and enjoyed everything that was made. We start by pausing and taking a deep breath. In and out. In and out. We remember that God is here. And so together, we prepare ourselves to be with God. Let's listen for a word or a phrase that the Holy Spirit may want to say to us from today's Bible reading. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are tired and have heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Accept my teachings and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your lives. The burden that I ask you to accept is easy. The load I give you to carry is light. What word or phrase stood out from today's Bible reading? Jesus doesn't say, come to me when you're good enough, or come to me when you're old enough, or come to me when you understand enough. He simply says, come to me. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us just as we are, and you invite us to come to you just as we are. Jesus says, I will give you rest. What heavy loads have we been carrying this week? Maybe someone we know is unwell. Maybe we're struggling with a difficult friendship. Maybe we're worried about something. We might feel like no one else knows what we've been carrying inside, but Jesus knows. And he says, all of you who are tired and have heavy loads, I will give you rest. Thank you, Jesus, that we can bring all our worries to you because you care for us. Thank you that when we come to you, you give us rest. Jesus encourages us to accept his work and learn from him. The work that he asks us to accept is easy. Thank you, Jesus, that the way that you ask us to live, the things that you ask us to do, aren't heavy loads. 
We thank you too for giving us extra strength and courage through the Holy Spirit. Let's pause and listen for a moment. What might Jesus be asking us to do or say for him this week? As we finish our time together, let's say this week's memory verse one last time. Psalm chapter 145 verse 18. The Lord is close to everyone who prays to him, to all who truly pray to him. God, help us to remember your word. May the Sabbath bring rest and joy to our hearts and our homes. May today be a little less go, 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 and a little more slow, slow, slow. May we care less about things and care more for people. As we relax in God's love, may we take time to listen and remember that we are all God's children. Amen. Question, what would it do in your life, in your family, in your friendships, in your marriage, if you were to take that kind of time on a regular basis to restore God's image in you, who's actually in charge of this world and who's not, and to restory yourself? Uh, let's trust God and let's give it a shot. Uh, let me say a prayer for you. Uh, Jesus, we love you. Thank you that as you're creating this world, you're just a different God than maybe what we were presented with. Definitely the gods that were presented in Egypt to those ancient Israelites. But you are not looking down and just asking us just to go and work and to try to earn approval but you love us and yes you have things that you want us to partner with you have things you want us to do you have talents and gifts that we get to joyfully use but we are not an afterthought we are not just about what we accomplish you invited us and created us very good humans Help us to be people who sleep. Help us to be people who eat. Help us to be people that are able to look at what we have accomplished and be done. Even when there was maybe a few more emails we could have sent, a little bit more we could have done on the project. Help us to learn how to rest in you and know that our identity doesn't come and all the different things that we can do and even what other people might think of us and our reputations. 